Sacherine Letters, Letter One of Biographia Literaria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee, Biographia Literaria, by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, Saturane's Letters. Letter One. On Sunday morning, September sixteenth, seventeen ninety eight, the Hamburg packet set sail from Yarmouth, and I, for the first time in my life, beheld my native land retiring from me at the moment of its disappearance in all the kirks churches chapels and meeting-houses in which the greater number i hope of my countrymen were at that time assembled i will dare question whether there was one more ardent prayer offered up to heaven than that which i then preferred for my country now then said i to a gentleman who was standing near me we are out of our country not yet not yet he replied and pointed to the sea this too is a briton's country this bombo gave a fillip to my spirits i rose and looked round on my fellow-passengers who were all on the deck we were eighteen in number vide lisette five englishmen an english lady a french gentleman and his servant an hanoverian and his servant a prussian a swede two danes and a mulatto boy a german tailor and his wife the smallest couple i ever beheld and a jew we were all on the deck but in a short time i observed marks of dismay the lady retired to the cabin in some confusion and many of the faces round me assumed a very doleful and frog-coloured appearance and within an hour the number of those on deck was lessened by one half i was giddy but not sick and the giddiness soon went away but left a feverishness and want of appetite which i attributed in great measure to the cybermephitis of the bilge-water and it was certainly not decreased by the exportations from the cabin however i was well enough to join the able-bodied passengers one of whom observed not inaptly that momus might have discovered an easier way to see a man's inside than by placing a window in his breast he needed only have taken a salt-water trip in a packet-boat i am inclined to believe that a packet is far superior to a stage-coach as a means of making men open out to each other in the latter the uniformity of posture disposes to dozing and the definitiveness of the period at which the company will separate makes each individual think more of those to whom he is going than of those with whom he is going but at sea more curiosity is excited if only on this account that the pleasant or unpleasant qualities of your companions are of great importance to you from the uncertainty how long you may be obliged to house with them besides if you are countrymen that now begins to form a distinction and a bond of brotherhood and if of different countries there are new incitements of conversation more to ask and more to communicate i found that i had interested the danes in no common degree i had crept into the boat on the deck and fallen asleep but was awakened by one of them about three o'clock in the afternoon who told me that they had been seeking me in every hole and corner, and insisted that I should join their party and drink with them. He talked English with such fluency, as left me wholly unable to account for the singular and even ludicrous incorrectness with which he spoke it. I went and found some excellent wines, and a dessert of grapes with a pineapple. The Danes had christened me Dr. Theology, and dressed as I was all in black, with large shoes and black worsted stockings, I might certainly have passed very well for a Methodist missionary. However, I disclaimed my title what then may you be a man of fortune no a merchant no a merchant's traveller no a clerk no and philosophe perhaps it was at that time in my life in which of all possible names and characters i had the greatest disgust to that of un philosophe but i was weary of being questioned and rather than be nothing or at best only the abstract idea of a man i submitted by a bow even to the aspersion implied in the word un philosophe the dane then informed me that all in the present party were philosophers likewise certes we were not of the stoic school for we drank and talked and sung till we talked and sung all together 
and then we rose and danced on the deck a set of dances which in one sense of the word at least were very intelligibly and appropriately entitled reels the passengers who lay in the cabin below in all the agonies of sea-sickness must have found our bacchanalian merriment a tune harsh and of dissonant mood from their complaint i thought so at the time and by way i suppose of supporting my newly assumed philosophical character i thought too how closely the greater number of our virtues are connected with the fear of death and how little sympathy we bestow on pain where there is no danger the two danes were brothers the one was a man with a clear white complexion white hair and white eyebrows looked silly and nothing that he uttered gave the lie to his looks the other whom by way of eminence i have called the dane had likewise white hair but was much shorter than his brother with slender limbs and a very thin face slightly pock-fretten this man convinced me of the justice of an old remark that many a faithful portrait in our novels and farces has been rashly censured for an outrageous caricature or perhaps nonentity i had retired to my station in the boat he came and seated himself by my side and appeared not a little tipsy he commenced the conversation in the most magnificent style and as a sort of pioneering to his own vanity he flattered me with such grossness the parasites of the old comedy were modest in the comparison his language and accentuation were so exceedingly singular that i determined for once in my life to take notes of a conversation here it follows somewhat abridged indeed but in all other respects as accurately as my memory permitted the dane what imagination what language what vast science and what eyes what a milk-white forehead oh my heaven why you're a got answer you do me too much honour sir the dane oh me if you should think i is flattering you no 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 i have ten thousand a year yes ten thousand a year yes ten thousand pound a year well and what is that a mere trifle i wouldn't give my sincere heart for ten times de money yes you're a got i a mere man but my dear friend think of me as a man is is i mean to ask you now my dear friend is i not very eloquent is i not speak english very fine answer most admirably believe me sir i have seldom heard even a native talk so fluently the dane squeezing my hand with great vehemence my dear friend what an affection and fidelity we have for each other but tell me do tell me is i not now and then speak some fault is i not in some wrong answer why sir perhaps it might be observed by nice critics in the english language that you occasionally use the word is instead of am in our best companies we generally say i am and not i is or eyes excuse me sir it is a mere trifle the dane oh is is am 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 yes yes i know i know answer i am thou art he is we are ye are they are the dane yes yes i know i know am 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 is the presence and is is the perfectum yes yes and are is the plusquam perfectum answer and art sir is the dane my dear friend it is the plusquam perfectum no no that is a great lie are is the plusquam perfectum and art is the plusquam plu perfectum then swinging my hand to and fro and cocking his little bright hazel eyes at me that danced with vanity and wine you see my dear friend that i too have some learning answer learning sir who dare suspect it who can listen to you for a minute who can even look at you without perceiving the extent of it 
the dane my dear friend then with a would-be humble look and in a tone of voice as if he was reasoning i could not talk so of prawns and imperfectum and futurum and plusquam plu perfectum and all that my dear friend without some learning answer sir a man like you cannot talk on any subject without discovering the depth of his information the dane de grammatic greek my friend ha 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 laughing and swinging my hand to and fro then with a sudden transition to great solemnity now i will tell you my dear friend there did happen about me what the whole historia of denmark record no instance about nobody else the bishop did ask me all the questions about all the religion in the latin grammar answer the grammar sir the language i presume the dane a little offended grammar is language and language is grammar answer ten thousand pardons the dane well and i was only fourteen years answer only fourteen years old the dane no more i was fourteen years old and he asked me all questions religion and philosophy and all in the latin language and i answered him all every one my dear friend all in the latin language answer a prodigy an absolute prodigy the dane no 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 he was a bishop a great superintendent answer yes a bishop the dane a bishop not a mere predicant not a prediger answer my dear sir we have misunderstood each other i said that your answering in latin at so early an age was a prodigy that is a thing that is wonderful that does not often happen the dane often there is not one instance recorded in the whole historia of denmark answer and since then sir the dane i was sent over to the west indies to our island and there i had no more to do with books no no i put my genius another way and i have made ten thousand pound a year is not dat genius my dear friend but vat is money i think the poorest man alive my equal yes my dear friend my little fortune is pleasant to my generous heart because i can do good no man with so little a fortune ever did so much generosity no person no man person no woman person ever denies it but we are all god's children here the hanoverian interrupted him and the other dane the swede and the prussian joined us together with a young englishman who spoke the german fluently and interpreted to me many of the prussian's jokes the prussian was a travelling merchant turned of three score a hale man tall strong and stout full of stories gesticulations and buffoonery with the soul as well as the look of a mountebank who while he is making you laugh picks your pocket amid all his droll looks and droll gestures there remained one look untouched by laughter and that one look was the true face the others were but its mask the hanoverian was a pale fat bloated young man whose father had made a large fortune in london as an army contractor he seemed to emulate the manners of young englishmen of fortune he was a good-natured fellow not without information or literature but a most egregious coxcomb he had been in the habit of attending the house of commons and had once spoken as he informed me with great applause in a debating society for this he appeared to have qualified himself with laudable industry for he was perfect in walker's pronouncing dictionary and with an accent which forcibly reminded me of the scotchman in roderick random who professed to teach the english pronunciation he was constantly deferring to my superior judgment whether or no i had pronounced this or that word with propriety or the true delicacy when he spoke though it were only half a dozen sentences he always rose for which i could detect no other motive than his partiality 
to that elegant phrase so liberally introduced in the orations of our British legislators, while I am on my legs. The Swede, whom for reasons that will soon appear I shall distinguish by the name of nobility, was a strong-featured, scurvy-faced man, his complexion resembling in colour, a red-hot poker beginning to cool. He appeared miserably dependent on the Dane, but was, however, incomparably the best informed and most rational of the party. Indeed, his manners and conversation discovered him to be both a man of the world and a gentleman. The Jew was in the hold. The French gentleman was lying on the deck so ill that I could observe nothing concerning him, except the affectionate attentions of his servant to him. The poor fellow was very sick himself, and every now and then ran to the side of the vessel, still keeping his eye on his master, but returned in a moment and seated himself again by him, now supporting his head, now wiping his forehead, and talking to him all the while in the most soothing tones. There had been a matrimonial squabble of a very ludicrous kind in the cabin, between the little German tailor and his little wife. He had secured two beds, one for himself and one for her. This had struck the little woman as a very cruel action. She insisted upon their having but one, and assured the mate in the most piteous tones that she was his lawful wife. The mate and the cabin-boy decided in her favour, abused the little man for his want of tenderness with much humour, and hoisted him into the same compartment with his seasick wife. This quarrel was interesting to me, as it procured me a bed which I otherwise should not have had. In the evening, at seven o'clock, the sea rolled higher, and the Dane, by means of the greater agitation, eliminated enough of what he had been swallowing to make room for a great deal more. His favourite potation was sugar and brandy, i.e., a very little warm water with a large quantity of brandy, sugar, and nutmeg. His servant-boy, a black-eyed mulatto, had a good-natured round face, exactly the colour of the skin of the walnut-colonel. The Dane and I were again seated tete-a-tete -tete in the ship's boat. The conversation, which was now indeed rather an oration than a dialogue, became extravagant beyond all that I ever heard. He told me that he had made a large fortune in the island of Santa Cruz, and was now returning to Denmark to enjoy it. He expatiated on the style in which he meant to live, and the great undertakings which he proposed to himself to commence, till the brandy aiding his vanity, and his vanity and garrulity aiding the brandy. He talked like a madman, and treated me to accompany him to Denmark. There I should see his influence with the government, and he would introduce me to the king, etc., etc. Thus he went on, dreaming aloud, and then, passing with a very lyrical transition to the subject of general politics, he declaimed, like a member of the corresponding society, about, not concerning, the rights of man, and assured me that, notwithstanding his fortune, he thought the poorest man alive his equal. All are equal, my dear friend, all are equal, we are all God's children, the poorest man hath the same rights with me. Jack, Jack, some more sugar and brandy. Dare is that fellow now. He is a mulatto, but he is my equal. That's right, Jack. Taking the sugar and brandy. Here, you, sir, shake hands with this gentleman. Shake hands with me, you dog. Dare, dare. We are all equal, my dear friend. Do I not speak like Socrates and Plato and Cato? They were all philosophers, my dear philosoph, all very great men, and so was Homer and Virgil, but they were poets. Yes, yes, I know all about it. But what can anybody say more than this? We are all equal, all God's children. I have ten thousand a year, but I am no more than the meanest man alive. I have no pride. And yet, my dear friend, I can say do, and it is done. Ha, 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 my dear friend. Now there's that gentleman, pointing to nobility. He is a Swedish baron. You shall see. Ho, calling to the Swede. Get me, will you, a bottle of wine from the cabin? Swede. Here, Jack, go and get your master a bottle of wine from the cabin. Dane, no, 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 do you go now, you go yourself, you go now. Swede, pah! Dane, 
now go go i pray you and the swede went after this the dane commenced an harangue on religion and mistaking me for unphilosoph in the continental sense of the word he talked of deity in a declamatory style very much resembling the devotional rants of that rude blunderer mr thomas paine in his age of reason and whispered in my ear what damned hypocrisy all jesus christ's business was i dare aver that few men have less reason to charge themselves with indulging in persiflage than myself i should hate it if it were only that it is a frenchman's vice and feel a pride in avoiding it because i own language is too honest to have a word to express it by but in this instance the temptation had been too powerful and i have placed it on the list of my offences pericles answered one of his dearest friends who had solicited him on a case of life and death to take an equivocal oath for his preservation debeo amicis opitulari sed usque ad deos friendship herself must place her last and boldest step on this side the altar what pericles would not do to save a friend's life you may be assured i would not hazard merely to mill the chocolate-pot of a drunken fool's vanity till it frothed over assuming a serious look i profess myself a believer and sunk at once an hundred fathoms in his good graces he retired to his cabin and i wrapped myself up in my greatcoat and looked at the water a beautiful white cloud of foam at momently intervals coursed by the side of the vessel with a roar and little stars of flame danced and sparkled and went out in it and every now and then light detachments of this white cloud-like foam darted off from the vessel's side each with its own small constellation over the sea and scoured out of sight like a tartar troop over a wilderness it was cold the cabin was at open war with my olfactories and i found reason to rejoice in my greatcoat a weighty high-caped respectable rug the collar of which turned over and played the part of a nightcap very possibly in looking up at two or three bright stars which oscillated with the motion of the sails i fell asleep but was awakened at one o'clock monday morning by a shower of rain i found myself compelled to go down into the cabin where i slept very soundly and awoke with a very good appetite at breakfast-time my nostrils the most placable of all the senses reconciled to or indeed insensible of the mephitis monday september seventeenth i had a long conversation with the swede who spoke with the most poignant contempt of the dane whom he described as a fool purse-mad but he confirmed the boast of the dane respecting the largeness of his fortune which he had acquired in the first instance as an advocate and afterwards as a planter from the dane and from himself i collected that he was indeed a swedish nobleman who had squandered a fortune that was never very large and had made over his property to the dane on whom he was now utterly dependent he seemed to suffer very little pain from the dane's insolence he was in a high degree humane and attentive to the english lady who suffered most fearfully and for whom he performed many little offices with a tenderness and delicacy which seemed to prove real goodness of heart indeed his general manners and conversation were not only pleasing but even interesting and i struggled to believe his insensibility respecting the dane philosophical fortitude for though the dane was now quite sober his character oozed out of him at every pore and after dinner when he was again flushed with wine every quarter of an hour perhaps oftener he would shout out to the swede ho oh, nobility go do such a thing mr nobility tell the gentleman such a story and so forth with an insolence which must have excited disgust and detestation if his vulgar rants on the sacred rights of equality joined to his wild havoc of general grammar no less than of the english language had not rendered it so irresistibly laughable at four o'clock i observed a wild duck swimming on the waves a single solitary wild duck it is not easy to conceive how interesting a thing it looked in that round objectless desert of waters i had associated such a feeling of immensity with the ocean that i felt exceedingly disappointed when i was out of sight of all land at the narrowness and nearness as it were of the circle of the horizon 
so little are images capable of satisfying the obscure feelings connected with words in the evening the sails were lowered lest we should run foul of the land which can be seen only at a small distance and at four o'clock on tuesday morning i was awakened by the cry of land land it was an ugly island rock at a distance on our left called heligoland well known to many passengers from yarmouth to hamburg who have been obliged by stormy weather to pass weeks and weeks in weary captivity on it stripped of all their money by the exorbitant demands of the wretches who inhabit it so at least the sailors inform me about nine o'clock we saw the mainland which seemed scarcely able to hold its head above water low flat and dreary with lighthouses and landmarks which seemed to give a character and language to the dreariness we entered the mouth of the elbe passing neuwerk though as yet the right bank only of the river was visible to us on this i saw a church and thanked god for my safe voyage not without affectionate thoughts of those i had left in england at eleven o'clock on the same morning we arrived at cuxhaven the ship dropped anchor and the boat was hoisted out to carry the hanoverian and a few others on shore the captain agreed to take us who remained to hamburg for ten guineas to which the dane contributed so largely that the other passengers paid but half a guinea each accordingly we hauled anchor and passed gently up the river at cuxhaven both sides of the river may be seen in clear weather we could now see the right bank only we passed a multitude of english traders that had been waiting many weeks for a wind in a short time both banks became visible both flat and evidencing the labour of human hands by their extreme neatness on the left bank i saw a church or two in the distance on the right bank we passed by steeple and windmill and cottage and windmill and single house windmill and windmill and neat single house and steeple these were the objects and in the succession the shores were very green and planted with trees not inelegantly thirty-five miles from cuxhaven the night came on us and as the navigation of the elbow is perilous we dropped anchor over what place thought i does the moon hang to your eye my dearest friend to me it hung over the left bank of the elbow close above the moon was a huge volume of deep black cloud while a very thin fillet crossed the middle of the orb as narrow and thin and black as a ribbon of crape the long trembling road of moonlight which lay on the water and reached to the stern of our vessel glimmered dimly and obscurely we saw two or three lights from the right bank probably from bedrooms i felt the striking contrast between the silence of this majestic stream whose banks are populous with men and women and children and flocks and herds between the silence by night of this peopled river and the ceaseless noise and uproar and loud agitations of the desolate solitude of the ocean the passengers below had all retired to their beds and i felt the interest of this quiet scene the more deeply from the circumstance of having just quitted them for the prussian had during the whole of the evening displayed all his talents to captivate the dane who had admitted him into the train of his dependents the young englishman continued to interpret the prussian's jokes to me they were all without exception profane and abominable but some sufficiently witty and a few incidents which he related in his own person were valuable as illustrating the manners of the countries in which they had taken place five o'clock on wednesday morning we hauled the anchor but were soon obliged to drop it again in consequence of the thick fog which our captain feared would continue the whole day but about nine it cleared off and we sailed slowly along close by the shore of a very beautiful island forty miles from cuxhaven the wind continuing slack this holm or island is about a mile and a half in length wedge-shaped well wooded with glades of the liveliest green and rendered more interesting by the remarkably neat farmhouse on it it seemed made for retirement without solitude a place that would allure one's friends while it precluded the impertinent calls of mere visitors 
the shores of the elba now became more beautiful with rich meadows and trees running like a low wall along the river's edge and peering over them neat houses and especially on the right bank a profusion of steeple spires white black or red an instinctive taste teaches men to build their churches in flat countries with spire steeples which as they cannot be referred to any other object point as with silent finger to the sky and stars and sometimes when they reflect the brazen light of a rich though rainy sunset appear like a pyramid of flame burning heavenward i remember once and once only to have seen a spire in a narrow valley of a mountainous country the effect was not only mean but ludicrous and reminded me against my will of an extinguisher the close neighbourhood of the high mountain at the foot of which it stood had so completely dwarfed it and deprived it of all connection with the sky or clouds forty-six english miles from cuxhaven and sixteen from hamburg the danish village vader ornaments the left bank with its black steeple and close by it is the wild and pastoral hamlet of Schulau. hitherto both the right and left bank green to the very brink and level with the river resembled the shores of a park canal the trees and houses were alike low sometimes the low trees overtopping the yet lower houses sometimes the low houses rising above the yet lower trees but at Schulau, the left bank rises at once forty or fifty feet and stares on the river with its perpendicular facade of sand thinly patched with tufts of green the elba continued to present a more and more lively spectacle from the multitude of fishing-boats and the flocks of seagulls wheeling round them the clamorous rivals and companions of the fishermen till we came to blancaness a most interesting village scattered amid scattered trees over three hills in three divisions each of the three hills stares upon the river with faces of bare sand with which the boats with their bare poles standing in files along the banks made a sort of fantastic harmony between each facade lies a green and woody dell each deeper than the other in short it is a large village made up of individual cottages each cottage in the centre of its own little wood or orchard and each with its own separate path a village with a labyrinth of paths or rather a neighbourhood of houses it is inhabited by fishermen and boat-makers the blankanese boats being in great request through the whole navigation of the elba here first we saw the spires of hamburg and from hence as far as altona the left bank of the elba is uncommonly pleasing considered as the vicinity of an industrious and republican city in that style of beauty or rather prettiness that might tempt the citizen into the country and yet gratify the taste which he had acquired in the town summer-houses and chinese show-work are everywhere scattered along the high and green banks the boards of the farmhouses left unplastered and gaily painted with green and yellow and scarcely a tree not cut into shapes and made to remind the human being of his own power and intelligence instead of the wisdom of nature still however these are links of connection between town and country and far better than the affectation of tastes and enjoyments for which men's habits have disqualified them passing by on saturdays and sundays with the burghers of hamburg smoking their pipes the women and children feasting in the alcoves of box and yew and it becomes a nature of its own on wednesday four o'clock we left the vessel and passing with trouble through the huge masses of shipping that seemed to choke the wide elba from altona upward we were at length landed at the boom-house hamburg end of letter one